Hello, you're listening to Sarah Archer and episode 251 of the Speaking Club podcast. I want to start this show with a quote from an unknown origin that I've definitely used before, but which is perfectly apt for this show. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. I started this podcast for two reasons. Because I want to help people recognise the power of stories and humour in speaking and because I believe it's your message that counts, not the number of ums and ahs you use. There are some organisations that want to create robot speakers. They want you to sacrifice your personality in order to speak perfectly. But I want to let you know that you can be yourself and a sensational speaker. So... If you want to be a speaker that connects and engages authentically through stories, a speaker that gives value as well as a great performance, then welcome home. Hey, I hope you're having a fantastic January so far. Have to say, mine got off to a rocky start. My dad ended up in hospital and last week we literally thought he was going to leave us. But thankfully, the old goat got his mind back in the game and is 100% better, and back to winding people up. Anyway, right, well, I have another cracker of a show for you today. But before I share more about that, I wanted to remind you that if improving your speaking is on your agenda for 2023, then you can get a massive head start on that by joining me for my masterclass on the 24th of January next Tuesday if you're listening to this right when the show's released. By the end of that masterclass, you'll know exactly what you need to create a powerful, engaging, brand-building talk that gets your audience into action. It's live with me, and I promise you'll have fun alongside getting a ton of value. And you can find out more about that and grab your space at saraharcher.co.uk slash masterclass. Okay, let's get on with the show today. Well, I don't know if you've noticed, I certainly have, that we're overwhelmed with evidence of competition and divisiveness in our governments, in reality TV and in the corporate world. However, in order to tackle the world's biggest challenges and indeed operate effectively in business life, we've got to be successful collaborators. But... With little effective role modelling day-to-day, a complete lack of training in the education system and beyond, and our own survival instinct working against us, how do we get better at this crucial skill? Well, funnily enough, that's where Dr Deb Mashek, who is my guest on this show, comes in. Deb is the founder of Myco Consulting LLC, And she applies relationship science to help people collaborate better and companies to thrive. She's also an experienced business advisor, a professor, higher education administrator, a national non-profit executive and the author of the forthcoming book, Collabor Hate. How to build incredible collaborative relationships at work, even if you'd rather work alone. She's been a speaker all over the place on collaboration, uh, including at the United Nations, uh, the American Psychological Association, and she's been featured in loads of media outlets, including MIT, New York Times, The Atlantic, uh, loads of them. 
So, clearly, she knows her stuff. And in this show, Deb is going to be sharing the secrets to collaborating better so that you can benefit and pay it forward. So, let's crack on. Welcome to the Speaking Club, Deb Mashek. It is such a delight to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, you are more than welcome. I'm really uh, looking forward to talking to you about this subject because I think it is something that is becoming more and more uh, on vogue and important these days. So before we get into that, I want to get you to share your story with me because I know you've got a very interesting story uh, and background and and how that story and your background contributed to you having the superpowers that you have around collaboration. Oh, thank you. So I start the, the book with the line, let's see if I can remember it off the top of my head, the trailer park, my parents' alcoholism, and my PhD. These are my three great teachers of collaboration. So that's that's where it all starts for me. And I grew up in North Platte, Nebraska. So it's in the middle of the, the US, a very rural area. And in this, in this double wide trailer, in this trailer park where the, the rules were basically, you know, at 10 o'clock, nine o'clock in the morning, at some point the, the kids would kind of spill out into the streets and you were on your own. You were expected to go play, go entertain yourselves. And the two rules were you, you don't leave the chain link fence. So there was a chain link fence that surrounded the property. And if anyone gets hurt, you go and tell their parents. But other than that, the kids were left to their own devices to figure out what to play, how to play, what the rules were, what to do when someone violated those rules, how to get along, how to entertain themselves. And there were never parents around or adults around saying, you know, if Johnny hit somebody, come tell me and I'll tell you how to make an apology. So we were, we were discovering and it was an, an incredibly uh, uplifting space in terms of being able to explore, to be on our own, to take on developmentally appropriate challenges. And it was, so it was in that space that I think I really started to, to get my feet under me in terms of figuring out social dynamics, um, figuring out how to thrive within that, within that space. And then, so that was, that was kind of the, the trailer park piece. And then the second piece is both of my parents struggled mightily with uh, alcohol addiction for most of my life. And if I speak about them in past tense, it's because they they both died when I was 24 years old. Um, one definitely from alcohol related problems and the other from heart attack, which, you know, health issues in general. But in that space, when you have anyone who's grown up with addiction has the experience where the adults in the world are struggling with kind of their own demons, they don't necessarily have the capacity to be as present and responsive to the needs of others around them. And that includes children often. And so kids end up being very parentified or adultified. And it's not uncommon to need to look outside of the home for access to things that all of us need to thrive. So care, attention, um, support, things like that. And just miraculously, I happen to be surrounded by incredible teachers starting, you know, in preschool. I remember preschool teachers, you know, taking me home after school and making me dinner and having snacks with me and things like that. And, you know, looking back, 
it, it's the sort of thing that I know can never happen in today's day and age. Like you would never, it would never be okay for a preschool teacher to take a kid home, for instance. But for me, I'm so glad that was available because I learned really early on how to, how to create these connections hmm. with these other adults in my life so that the, the kind of chaotic stuff on the home front did not have the, the kind of tanking effect that it could have had I not had those other adult resources available to me. So I, I learned how to, you know, scorn my environment for the people who could be helpful and how to create connection in a way that served my needs, my interest. So that was pretty amazing. Um, and to me, one of the interesting pieces of the story is that it was never assumed that I would go on to college, much, much less graduate school. That just was not an assumption in the cards, but there was a high school counselor named Jean Church, who, you know, pulled me into her office and said, I went by Debbie back then. And she said, you know, Debbie, you, you're a smart kid. I want you to go to college. There's this test you need to take called the ACT. And I thought that was a really stupid name for a test because what does it mean to act? But come to find out it stands for academic something or other. And so she signed me up. I went and I took the, this exam and I, you get this report of these results that I hadn't, you know, it's like this digitized dot matrix report with all these lines on it. And there's something about percentiles, but I don't really know what it means. And so I take this paper into her and I say, Mrs. Church, this is what I got in the mail. And she looks at it and she said, you did really well. You're hairline below where the really big scholarship money is going to come in. I want you to go take this test again. So I took it again, did a great job on it. And then I started to get all of these um, notices from colleges saying, hey, you should apply here. You should apply here. Now, in my family, where, again, the, you know, they weren't necessarily scanning the horizon for career and college opportunities for me. That junk mail went straight into the trash can. So I didn't, you know, I didn't go on college admissions tours. I didn't, you know, go visit colleges with my family. I went back to Jean Church, though, and she said, you know what, sit right here, I'm going to put in a call. She picks up the phone while I'm there and she calls the college admissions counselor at, um, at Nebraska Westland and said, hey, I think his name was Ken. Ken, I've got a student here I really would like you to take a look at. I'm sending over her files, um, take a close look and let us know what you think. And the rest is history. So because of this amazing guidance counselor, I was able to, to get into college to get into a great college that where I just really thrived. And then miraculously, a similar story happened on my way to graduate school. And so it was never, you know, so I like to say I went from trailer park to PhD um, and the path entirely revolves around the role of other people and in, in supporting and seeing what was possible and moving me along. So I get to graduate school. And in my very first semester, I was in a psychology of close relationships course. And I had no idea there was an area of specialty called the psychology of close relationships. But here I was in this class reading research paper after research paper about how relationships work and the science behind it and the theory behind it and how that applies to everything from parenting to intimate relationships to workplace relationships. And I was so, so hooked. That, that's what I decided I wanted to, at that point, to dedicate my entire life to. Gosh, it's a very tumultuous. I, I guess a question that I've got is when you were sort of in that situation, 
you know, with your parents and what was the moment that you, I don't know if, if there was a moment, when was the moment that you thought, you know, I need to develop, I need to, to look outside or what, you know, that, that you needed to develop these, these, these powers or, you know, to sort of have this ability because you weren't getting what you needed from home. What, what sort of age was that? That's a good question. And I don't know that I can point to any one moment because it it ends up just being the ground noise. You're, you're not even sure. It's as though the, the refrigerator is coming and you don't realize how loud it is until yeah. it stops. And then you're like, man, that was a really loud refrigerator. Um, but what I do remember is as early as kindergarten, second grade, um, noticing that other people's families were different. So my friend Haley, her family lived, they didn't live in the trailer park, but they lived just kind of adjacent to it. So it was close enough that we, I was allowed to walk over there and, and you know, go visit Haley. And um, what I remember is observing how her family was that, wow, you know, when Haley needs something, she can go to her mom and ask for it. Or her mom's asking her things about how was her day. And then her mom would ask me, how was my day? And just the dynamic felt different and it felt incredibly comfortable. So I did have the benefit of getting to see early role models of what parental responsiveness could look like. And then it was lucky enough that they kind of took me under their wing. And so I, I got to benefit from a lot of that. Right. Have you got any siblings, Deb? I do. I have one older brother and one younger brother, and they still live in my hometown. Excellent. So did you three end up becoming a sort of tribe or, or did you kind of tackle these things in your own different ways? We all tackled them in really different ways. And some of the most interesting conversations I've had over the past couple of years have been with my younger brother in particular, where we've started to compare notes more now that we're, you know, adults to say, what was that like for you? Or do you remember this thing? Or, oh my God, I didn't know anybody else had even noticed that thing. And so I, you know, one of my, I won't even call it a regret because I don't think I would have been ready for those conversations before, but I'm really grateful to be having those now um, because real learning is coming out of it for not just about me and my life, but learning about him and his life. So that's been really, really very powerful. Oh, excellent. And and there was a thing that I read in your book um, that there is some statistic about children or people from lower class backgrounds having stronger abilities in collaboration. It, can you just expand about that? Because I was fascinated by that, that it's not just your personal experience. It's a thing. Yeah. So I, it was last fall and I was sitting on the couch trying to decide if I should actually write this book. So I yeah. thought I had an idea. I was like, well, who would really care to hear about this topic? I care about this topic, but why would they want to hear it from somebody like me? You know, all those little, that chimp mind that comes yeah. up of, do I really have anything interesting to say here? And I, yeah, I, I couldn't come up with an answer, decided to distract myself with LinkedIn. So I turned on LinkedIn and up pops this post from Jay Von Babel, who's a professor at NYU. And he does fascinating work on the role of social connections and in, in all sorts of aspects of the world. And his post was talking about a Harvard Business Review article 
where these researchers had looked at in the workplace the role of social class variants in creating strong teams. And they found just what you were saying that those of us who come from lower class backgrounds who maybe had a bit of a scrappier upbringing than others, there are real strengths there in terms of figuring out what to do with your resources, how to get it done despite obstacles, um, how to do it with other people and navigate around those obstacles. And so it was it was right then and there that just kind of the, you know, I, I breathed a little easier, my shoulders dropped down and I thought, you know, I'm going to do this. I can write a book that, you know, the world needs to hear what I have to say about this topic. That's really interesting. It's fascinating. And it's it's almost like, because you had to be self-sufficient and yet in achieving self-sufficiency, you were almost completely reliant on other people because you didn't have the resources yourself. Yeah, and that's, you know, if you think about in childhood, there's, children can be really, you know, we don't, I don't think we give them enough credit for how independent and capable they truly are. Mm they can't do everything. They don't have access typically to money, to food, to shelter, to clothing. Mm -hmm. And so the self-sufficiency, as you said, requires connecting with other people to bring those resources in. Mm, absolutely. Now, one of the things that you talked about, and I think, I think I know that this is, this is the, you know, what it is, but you talked about how you as children in, in the trailer park had, you know, self-guided, you know, um, games and stuff like that. And in the book, you talk about this term free play and how that plays a big factor in creating successful collaborators. And there's also, there was a, there was a concern, and I think it was someone who was commenting at the, in the start of your book about how there was an issue with generations of today that maybe have sat in their bedroom, you know, and not had so much self-guided, you know, play. It, it, could you talk, talk a bit more about that? What, what exactly it is? And I'm also interested where people haven't had that opportunity as they've been developing to, to create this stuff, whether it can be recreated in a corporate environment. Yeah. So, First of all, I have to say that my thinking on this topic has been very much shaped by Lenore Skenazy and Jonathan Haidt, who are both part of letgrow.org. And so, you know, a lot of this comes from, my understanding of it um, comes from those conversations. And I'll start by saying that, you know, I'm a parent and I always say that my number one job as a parent is to put myself out of a job that I want to help raise a, a person who's confident, who's competent, who's willing to go out and, and is capable of going out and navigating this tricky world that's out there. There, there are no clear paths for any of us. And then I think through, well, how am I going to actually do that? And the, the big Uber strategy is provide him with developmentally appropriate challenges where he can figure out how to navigate the world, where he can see that he can know how to do this, that he, when he fails, because of course he's gonna fail because he's taking on challenges that he can turn around and see what resources are available to him, including his relationship with me, including his relationships with friends and other adults um, to turn to for support to help him through that. So unless we give kids 
developmentally appropriate challenges, they're not going to develop those habits of heart or mind or connection to actually be able to, to or, or develop into those incredible adults that they are capable of being. Um, so uh, that's kind of the background there. Yeah. So then on this side of, you know, what does it mean if we are overly protective of kids, if we, you know, don't let them kind of battle out some of their own social struggles, or if we don't let them do basic things like use the knife to cut their own fruit or to cross the street on their own. Or, you know, my kiddo started commuting into the, I live on Staten Island and he started to commute into Manhattan for school uh, when he started sixth grade and he does it by himself and he's perfectly capable of doing that. And, you know, we choose not to use uh, tracking on his phone. So it, it, he knows my phone number. I now know his phone number. And, you know, it just, so the idea is that there's a lot of trust and there's a lot of um, open communication about what are you encountering? What support do you need to, to navigate that well? I believe that all of this is an opportunity to exercise the muscles that we need to be in relationship with others, to, to face uncertainty and to figure our way through it. And then that moves forward into the workplace where, you know, a lot of the problems we're dealing with in corporations or even in nonprofits, there are no simple answers. If there were simple answers, other people would have already found them. And so we've got these ill-defined, messy problems. We're going to be encountering snag after snag, hurdle after hurdle. And the question is, what, what is our response when that happens? Is it to shut down and say, oh, it, you know, we're incapable or, oh, it's somebody else's fault? Or is it to lift our heads up connected with a friend, figure out how are we going to do this? How are we going to do it together? What is the first step? Okay, we hit another snag. How are we, you know, what are we going to pivot to next? Those are precisely the sort of mindsets and skill sets that equip businesses to really stay, stay current and present and optimize in the face of challenge. Absolutely. And, and do you think that, that the generate, you know, young generations that came out after us so because I remember I remember being allowed to go you know out to play and I'd go out in the morning and then I'd come back in the evening and my parents wouldn't know where where I was and it I I think there is a less freedom these days I mean you sound like you're you know getting the balance right with your your as, as a parent yourself but do you think that it is an issue that 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 we need to be aware of I do think it's an issue. And one of the things that makes it a tough nut to crack is it's coming from such a good place. Of course, people love their children. Of course, they want to protect them. And in our minds, when we're anxious and we're worried and there, it is a big, uncertain, ambiguous world, then, you know, the question is, well, how am I going to protect them? Well, I'm going to hold them close. I'm um, going to insulate them from the challenges that are out there, the scary stories, the, you know, the wars, the, mm-hmm. the poverty, you know, all those things. Um, but then you have to ask yourself, so at some point the kids are going to go out there, whether it's when they're 18 or they're living in your basement until they're 30, but at some point they're going to go out into that world. They're going to encounter those things. So how do you like hydrate it? How do you let enough of the stuff in to give them that resolve and to start strengthening those chops before they're actually going to need them. Um, so I do think we're 
coming from a good place culturally that we want to protect our kids, but we're doing, I think, a long-term disservice to their well-being and their ability to navigate a difficult world. So if I, you know, if you grow up just hearing messages about how scary and uncertain um, the world is, how you should never talk to strangers because they're going to abduct you and take you away from your family. And, you know, no, you can't cross the street. You're going to get killed by a car. If these are the messages that you're ingesting from the moment you're born, when you get out into that world, maybe it's after college, maybe it's after high school, guess what? The world's going to, you're going to have the lens on that. That world is very scary and it is out to get you. And that's a hard place to thrive in. And, and essentially there is a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy there. You know, there is this, this, you know, thinking that you, the filter you look through the world that is the is the world you get so um yeah interesting stuff okay right let's move on the next thing that you mentioned in the book that caught my eye and that I was curious about was something called relationship theory can you tell me a bit more about that and how that relates into collaboration yeah so theory in general is a system of ideas used to explain some phenomenon. So when we're talking about relationship theory, there are all of these different theoretical models, like dozens and dozens and dozens of them that are systems of ideas that explain how we relate to other people. So it could be how we relate to our children or how we connect with our intimate partners or how we befriend um, coworkers. And when I was in, say, that psychology of close relationships class, we would spend each week talking about a different theory. So what are the, the big principles of it? Um, what is some of the research that's been used to test the hypotheses derived from those principles? And just as one example, one of the big ones in the relationships world is attachment theory. And this is one that's pretty, pretty pleasant at moment um, in the cultural mindset. But the, the big idea there is that how we, the responsiveness we experience as children ingrains in us an internal narrative about whether others can be counted on in times of need, whether we can turn to others and help us emotion regulate when we're stressed out, for instance. And I used to, used to be a professor at Harvey Mudd College, and I would teach uh, my version of the psychology of close relationships class. And I would, to introduce this theory, stand up in class, I would bring a bouncy ball, um, and I would ask the student volunteer to come up and play catch with me. And we would play catch with this ball, and I would say, you're going to throw this ball to me 10 times, and then I'm going to ask you a question. So the student would come up, throw the ball 10 times, I would catch it every single time. And then I would give them the ball for the 11th time and say, okay, what is the probability that I'm going to catch this ball based on the past behavior? And they said, oh, I, I think you can do this. I think you can catch it. So they would throw and I would catch it. Mm -hmm. Then I would ask another student to come up and I would give them the ball. We do the same thing. Only this time, I wouldn't catch the ball a single time. I would just ignore the ball. I would let it hit me. Sometimes it would hit me like in the face and the students thought that was hysterical. <laughs> and then when I would ask this student, you know, what, what's the likelihood I'm going to catch the ball? They would say, you're not, you're being a total flake. You're like, I get it. You're not going to catch the dang ball. They were right. And I would bring up a third student and we do it again. And this time I would be really intermittent. I would be some 50, I wouldn't, it wasn't a perfect 50%. I would try to keep it a little bit variable. Um, but when it came time for the student to make their prediction, they would shrug their shoulders and say, I, I really don't know if you're going to be there or not. 
And this demonstrates the, the key ideas from attachment theory is that our, our past learning experiences with other people in our world ingrain what's called these internal working models where you, you come to understand whether or not other people can be trusted. And from it, this theory developed out of um, parent-child, understanding parent-child relationships. And then eventually the researchers said, wait a minute, the same dynamic is at play in adult-adult relationships. And you can imagine once you have a deeply ingrained belief about whether others can be counted on or whether you're worthy of other people's responsiveness, you carry that into the, the workplace, for instance. So when I say, you know, I'm applying relationship theory in the workplace, one of the questions I, I like to look at is what, what is it about an individual's relationship history that might be playing out in these relationships in the workplace that really are not about what your boss is doing or not doing, but it's about what lenses am I carrying into the office with me that have developed over many, many, many years. And we don't just, those don't just like rinse off of us when we walk through the office door. Wow. Okay. And so extrapolating that on, if you are then asked to collaborate with people and your background is that in the past you've been let down, you know, you know, that even let's, you know, there's often a thing in, in, in some college work where there'll be one person that has to do it because everyone else is flaky and they've had to do it all. They're then going to transpose that into the workplace and expect that to be the model for all of those similar situations going forward. Exactly. So if I believe that other people can't be counted on to do what they say they're going to do, then when I show up in that college work group and there are four of us and everyone supposedly had their part to do, I don't believe that's going to happen. So I start to be the, the micromanager who, who's like, well, John, you know, it's day one of the class and, you know, John hasn't started his, the, the slide deck when I start haranguing him, it's like, you haven't started, you haven't done it. In which case he's going to be like, what's bothering me about? And might tune out because, you know, he's, he's playing out some of his own relationship dynamics there too. Um, I had a, have a great story about this where my kiddo was in preschool and I wanted to be that super involved preschool mommy who was going to get, you know, I wanted to like help with the fundraisers and be very present. So I volunteered to help out with it, to create a fair for this school, for the preschool fundraiser. And I go to the parent meeting and there are probably 10 of us in the room. And I volunteer to, to reach out for donations from various businesses. And I said, I will find five businesses. I will go reach out and we'll come back together. I'll let you know, you know, what I learned. When we came back together, the, the leader of the parent group had reached out to all of the same businesses. And I said, I told you I was going to do that. And she said, well, I, I didn't think you actually would. And so then my feelings were hurt. I felt sidelined and dismissed. I folded my arms. I did not do squat for, on this team from there on out. So, you know, I didn't behave real well. Um, I, I could have handled it differently. I see that now. Um, but you know, this idea of when someone is the totally takes charge it does undermine other people's ability to contribute meaningfully to that group. So yes, you're exactly, that's exactly right. So those assumptions start to play out. Interesting. Yeah. I don't, I think you're only human Deb. I'd have done the same thing. I mean, you can stick okay, it right where the sun don't shine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> cool. Okay. 
Um, so uh, what I was also interested in was now we've, we've said you've written a new book. It's all about this subject, but you've you've come up with an interesting title. And I wanted to understand why you have made it so provocative. Um, so tell, if you'd like to tell us what it is and then what why you created it, that title. So the, the title is Collabor Hate. So collaborate, but with an H. And the H hides inside these parentheses and it's almost like a little whisper. And here's my thinking on it. I know from data as well from my, as well as from my own experience that a lot of us have mixed feelings about collaboration. So on, especially in the workplace. So we know we're supposed to do it. We know it's important for our professional development, for the, the health and wealth of our companies, blah, blah, blah. But when you ask people, so what do you really think about this whole collaboration thing? If they're being honest, a lot of people will tell you that it's actually really hard to do well. Um, I collected data from 1,100 full-time workers in the United States and asked, hey, have you ever been in a collaboration that you would say was absolutely horrendous? And I, I tried to find like this really big word, like absolutely horrendous, thinking what are the chances anyone's going to cop to that? And the, the final data was something like 71% said, yeah, they raised their hand. I've been in a collaboration that was absolutely horrendous. And I get it because this people stuff is really messy and we're not taught how to do it, which we can talk about in a little bit too. And so I wanted to find a way to give voice to the hard stuff about collaboration, because I think that's the only way we're actually going to be able to unpack it and make it better, make it less painful, more productive for more people. So some people love this title. Some people hate it, whatever, you know, that's great. So now we're getting conversation around it. So I guess that's a win. Um, but that's what I was going for there is, is to try to honor. It is tricky. There is pain involved and we have to move beyond what I, I kind of call the cultural um, reverence for all things working together as though you should, you should do together work just because that's the right thing to do, or it's the fun thing to do. And the truth is it's not for everybody. And I have a, a hunch, perhaps the people who, uh, who have only had positive, I don't know, I, I'm trying to figure out if maybe people who totally don't get the title are perhaps the ones who might be causing some of the problems. <laughs> like that. Is that horrible to say? <laughs> no, absolutely. Um, and I was, I was just fascinated, like you did this list of all the things that people have experienced around collaboration where it's and I've you know I've worked in corporate I've I've seen you know literally all of the ones that you came up with I was like yep tick 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 you know it was spot on and I was like blimey it it is really hard so why is it so difficult to do well do you think Okay, can I just say, as you're talking about tick, 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 I think I need to make a bingo card of all of these and then people can see bingo as they go through them. Definitely. Okay, so why is collaboration hard? So I think one of the reasons is because people are messy and collaboration necessarily, at least the kind of collaboration I'm talking about, necessarily involves other people. There are robot collaborations, human-robot collaborations. Those are not the ones I'm thinking about. So. Um, when people are involved, things get messy, things get hard. I think the other reason, or one other reason, collaboration is difficult, is because we use that word in this really 
vague hand wavy way to mean a whole heck of a different lot of ways of working together. Everything from, oh, we're sitting in a meeting, therefore it's collaboration to, oh, we're creating a brand new, you know, thinking about like COVID response, for instance, we're figuring out how across nations to um, do an emergency response to this foreign virus that we have no idea what it is or how it behaves. It's like a mega huge collaboration. And the fact that that one word stands in for all those different forms of working together, I think is one of the problems. Um, another problem is that we're just not taught how to do this. It's kind of assumed that, oh, you know, we're social creatures. We can either play well together or not. And so there's this sink or swim mentality about it that I bet you can think in your own world, there are some people who are uh, better or worse collaborators. Um, and we might be drawn to those people who are really good collaborators, but we don't necessarily pause and say, huh, what is it that they're doing exactly that is making this a positive experience? Or God forbid, why is it they're able to do that? How do they know to do that? What would it, What's in their background that set them up for being able to collaborate well? And can we replicate that? Can we that in a jar? Can we teach it? Can we make it available to other people to kind of raise the ocean and to raise all the ships at once? Excellent. And when it does come to collaboration, what do you think is the most important thing? Good processes, effective tools, or the relationship part? Yeah, so I think a lot of, when we talk about collaboration in the workplace, a lot of people default to collaboration software. So project management software, or thinking about what what communication channel are we going to use to shoot thousands of messages around a day? Those things are important. They're tools though, but those are not going to make a collaboration happen. So if I am of the, you know, I'm trying to think through, gosh, which of those is most important? Admitting I'm biased because I'm a close relationships researcher. I'm going to go on the side of relationships because I think good people who are in positive relationships together can do wonders with on a shoestring. So without a lot of resources and they can figure out a way to get it done, even if there's not, you know, a Trello board guiding their way. Um, I had the opportunity to interview a, bo a boat builder, Michael Danfito about, you know, I said, what do we, and he's a collaboration guru. <laughs> I said, what do you know about collaboration from the vantage point of a boat builder? And he had this he, this beautiful story where he's like, you know, boats are aggregates of systems. So you need the navigation system. You need the, the steering system. You need this vessel that doesn't let water in. And people who build each of those systems are experts in their own right. They have particular ways of getting things done. They have preferences. They know what works for them. And so when you're building a boat, you need to put all of these systems together. But if you do it poorly... Or, you know, the navigation system, is it the wrong place? I don't, I, I'm from Nebraska, it's totally landlocked. My boat metaphors don't hold up real well. Um, but he's like, you know, if you have great tools, fabulous. But if you have crappy materials to work with, those great tools will only get you so far. Likewise, if you have, you know, the best wood and the shiniest brass, awesome. But if you have people who don't know what to do, do with that wood or with that brass, you're going to get a junk boat. And so this idea of the people, the tools and the processes are all interrelated. They're mutually limiting and they're mutually amplifying. And so I 
have started to think more now about what it means to build a collaborative ecosystem or an ecosystem that supports collaboration. And it's, it's becoming really clear that you need individuals who have this capacity and skill set to be collaborative. You need them to be in collaborative relationships with each other. You need them to be taking collaborative action within the context of a collaborative culture. So there are kind of these four facets now. And um, I should say that I have a, a webinar coming up on February 1st, if anyone's interested, where we're going to be talking about those four aspects of the collaboration ecosystem and how to figure out where your weaknesses are so you know where to intervene and how to intervene. Um, so this is, so if I had to pick though, with the, the people and the relationships. Cool. And is that webinar for individuals or organizations or how, who's going to get the most benefit from that or both? Thank you. I have designed it for business leaders. Mm -hmm. So it's going to make sense to, to anybody who is in this situation of trying to collaborate within some organizational context. Brilliant. And I was thinking, you know, about this relationship thing that, you know, I've done psychometric profiles in the past. I've had them done to me. We've done them with, with teams that I've been, you know, in charge of or part of, and they just give you, you know, that, that sort of what you're like, but none of them consider that thing that you've been talking about, about how have, you know, how have you related to people in the past and how have people related to you and, and that side of thing. Is that is that a tool that you introduce into? Is that the first part of making this work is having that sort of self-awareness and insight into where you might be on this sort of collaboration continuum or what? I don't know. I've just literally made that up. Um, but is that the first part of it, do you think? So I, the diagnostics that I've created look at that whole ecosystem piece well this is for if you know if you're trying to figure out gee something's not working organizationally I love sitting down and assessing what do you have in terms of your team what are their do they have the right skill sets but importantly what are their mindsets so do you have a bunch of people who hate collaborating or who have been really burned before because of course they're going to carry those those scars yeah. forward with them and then I'm going to be asking about on on any one team, how are those relationships between people? So do you have high quality relationships that are typified by things like trust and satisfaction and excitement and challenge, but also how interdependent are the are these relationships? So is it the case that, you know, man, Sarah, your your poor behaviors are having significant, a significant impact on what I'm experiencing in terms of my work review or my relationships with the clients. And we can, we can assess both of those pieces, that relationship quality and the inter interdependence. And then I'm going to go over and look at that, the collaborative action. So does this organization, does this team have in place clear steps and processes for figuring out what could we do, thinking about what should we do? Um, what do they have project management in place? And toward the end of that, do they actually ever stop and say, hey, how's our collaboration working for everybody. So kind of evaluating the health of the, the relation or the team itself and that dynamic. Then I'm also going to be looking at, and this is all kind of like that first, yeah. you know, the first radar looking at culturally what's in place. So if you 
is collaboration even possible in this space? And you can look at infrastructure things there. Is it easy? Is it normative? Is it rewarding or is it required? And like each of those steps, you can see through things like policies, the practices, um, incentive-wise. Is this a company, you know, say on their letterhead, we love collaboration. But then when you look about what people are actually rewarded for, it's all individual work. There, that that points to one of those things like, oh yeah, yeah, we say on one side of our mouth that we like collaboration, but really the thing we value is is individual um, reward. And not only that, but we maybe the incentives are set up to put your individual contributors in competition with each other. And so you're, we can look at everything from policies to practices, other things like taking a look at the vendor contracts and are they do they talk about their vendors as true collaborators or do they have um, nested in the vendor contract an indemnification clause that says the vendor may not, you know, may not take issue with our company, but we haven't reciprocated with a clause that likewise protects the vendor. You know, you can look, so there are all these little yeah. things we can look at as signals, you know, kind of fireflies out in the landscape to figure out what picture is really being painted here about this ecosystem. So the, the assessment really is much broader than just, any yeah. what's going on for any individual so it really depends on if the organization is looking to do you know team-based work and professional development or if they're looking to do something broader truly turning around the culture that's brilliant wow so that that sounds like that whole sort of taking stock audit piece is the first step in in the process and and if if companies do want to shift from clever hate to clever great, as you call it, you know, what other things do they need to look at? So I guess that's the first piece, take stock of where you are in that ecosystem. Yeah. And then once you know kind of where your your leaky parts are, then you can figure out you know, there's a whole host for all of those facets. There are all these things you could do to make mm-hmm. corrections. Um, and then maybe we can just take the example of you have a, an individual relationship. So maybe you and I are collaborators and things just were, you know, oil and water, so to speak. How can we move our relationship from that collaborate to collaborate? And the, it's a counterintuitive path because we've got those two dimensions of relationship quality on one axis and uh, interdependence on this other axis. And when you have really high interdependence, so whether I like it or not, my wagon is hitched to your horses. So if you're <laughs> going off the rails, my my wagon's falling off the cliff with you. Um, so really, really high interdependence, but low relationship quality. So I don't enjoy spending time with you. I don't believe that you're gonna do what you say you're gonna do. I think you're not putting in your all to your in our work. And so, you know, you get a a fast performance, and then I have to suffer the consequences. So when you have high interdependence and low relationship quality, that that is what it means to collaborate. That's like the really miserable, it feels like screeching demons are reaching for your soul as you try to traverse this, this pit of work together. It really sucks. Um, to get out of that, the first thing you need to do is find a way of decoupling interdependence a little bit. So separating the work, creating less contingencies on, you know, that person has to do their part. And if they do a crappy job, then I I have a ceiling on what I can do. So figuring out how to change how you've structured 
the work is one of the strategies, um, finding ways of decreasing the amount of time you have to spend with that other person so they can't get under your skin as much. So maybe fewer meetings or shorter meetings or work on fewer projects together. So there are all these little tweaks you can make that gives you then the headspace and the heart space to start working on the relationship quality by, um, you know, by building more trust by, and there are strategies for doing that by getting to know the other person as a person, as opposed to just this role that they're in. And it's, I like to draw the parallel to if you have a, a married couple that's on the verge of divorce and they, they go and they finally decide to go see the, the relationship therapist. If that therapist says, oh, you know what you should do is just go have some date nights or you should go have a trust fall. That's the equivalent of saying, oh, just go work on relationship quality. Everything else will, will pan out. That's really unlikely to happen. What the therapist is more likely to say, is there a way we can you to separate for a little bit. So maybe if the resources are there, can one person move out or can one person move down to the basement for now to, to disentangle all of those interdependencies, things like, you know, one, what, what are we going to make for dinner or where are the, are the socks you know on top of the couch? I'm so annoyed, but just remove, remove some of those interdependencies so that we can then start working on improving the relationship quality and then come back together again. And so that pathway from collaborate to collaborate goes in this kind of counterintuitive route where you need to first decrease interdependence and then increase relationship quality and then increase interdependence again. And I realize that's a very visual thing to be describing over audio. So I will say I'll, I'll send you a handout that you're welcome to in the show notes too. that. It's a beautiful graphic that describes all of this in a way is, that maybe would is help. Is that the Meshek matrix? It is. That's my it very self-referential name I love for that. that. I was like, that is so cool. I want to. I want to call something after my name. I. I love that. No, it's really cool. It is simple, but it is uh, a very powerful, and that's fascinating. Because I would have thought I was waiting for you to say get to know each other better, like as the first thing. And I was a bit disappointed. I was like, oh, I thought you were going to say, right, that's it. Don't even bother trying to mend fences. Just get it done as quickly as possible. I see now that creating that space to then sort of build that relationship is it, it yeah it's really cool excellent and thank you can for i just say that. too though that this also means when you're onboarding new people onto a project it's super important to give this you could start because you're not yet interdependent so it doesn't really matter so start working first on relationship quality take the time mm -hmm. to get to know your colleagues get to know their needs their their interests their hopes their dreams their fears because that increases the relationship quality setting you up for the collaborate, which is that high relationship quality plus higher interdependence. That's brilliant. Cool. Now you mentioned the word, uh, I know we've sort of covered a lot of ground. You mentioned the word collaboration. Uh, you mentioned the word, obviously you mentioned the word collaboration. That's what we're here to talk about. But you also talked about the word competition. And I was curious about this because I have in the past uh, and, 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 present day been known to be quite competitive and and we are it's really difficult isn't it so I think it's can are those two things mutually exclusive you know you've already, you've already mentioned about organizations that reward individuals and there are very few organizations that I've been part of in all my time in the corporate world maybe there was a team bonus for a particular project or something like that but the norm is individual performance um, should you have both or should you go all in on collaboration over competition? So 
first of all, I don't think they're mutually exclusive. In fact, I think that collaboration is a competitive advantage. The trick is to figure out who are you actually competing with. So the problem comes up when internal to the team or internal to the organization, you're you're having individuals compete with each other as opposed to our team or our organization competing with an external team or an external organization. So you need a, you need a clear competitor, um, but it should not be that I don't think it should be the people who you're trying to collaborate with because you're totally setting up the disincentive. So, um, you know, in the case of maybe there's a, a team bonus or maybe we're even just highlighting the examples around us where people are collaborating well and something really cool happened because sales and marketing got together to do something. Um, or we stopped talking about these silos, well, it's, we can't just talking about the silos in the organization, we actually have to melt the silos in the organization. But the metaphor here of you need the organs in the organization working harmoniously together. These are not separate entities with different, um, they have different functions. They don't have different ultimate goals or superordinate goals that are sitting on top of why they exist in the first place. And I think it's incumbent on the leadership to, to make that case, to make that case strongly, to model it, to hold up examples of when you see the, the organs and the organization working really well together. Absolutely, cool, that's, that's good. Okay, now the other question, I've got two more questions to ask you. Um, when collaboration, so I see collaboration sort of business to business, uh, entrepreneurs together, obviously within organizations, you know, it, it's a big thing. And it is true that on your own, you can go fast, uh, on together, you can go far. And, but what opportunities should we be saying no to? Because that's the thing. Should you automatically say yes to everything, or you know, should there be some something that we should look at around that? Right. So yeah, there's kind of this again the kumbaya of like, oh, collaboration. It's a good thing. We should all be doing it. But it's a bit bonkers because if we say yes to everything, we're de facto saying no to everything because we're going to be pulled too thin. So of course that that's not a good choice. The question then is, as you said, how do you decide what to say yes to? First of all, say yes to, and I should say, I'm going to say four qualities here, should all be in place before you say yes. So does this collaboration align with your, your needs, your interest? So if not, you know, you're going to say no, because why would you invest time and energy in something just for the sake of investing your time and energy? So there are too many things in the world that do align for you. So say yes to those things. Second one, I think is really, they're all important, but the second one is, are you actually able to contribute meaningfully to this collaboration? There are two parts here. One, do you have the skill sets that this collaboration actually needs? Um, or are you going to be the, the deadwood who's not actually contributing? That's, you know, do you don't want to be that person? But the piece is, do you have capacity to contribute meaningfully right now? So if you're already 
stretch too thin, you've got too many irons in the fire. If you say yes, even though you might in another time be the perfect collaborator for this project, you are going to disappoint other people. You are going to burn bridges. You're going to perform under the capacity that you know you're capable of giving. So you got to say no, or you got to get the other stuff off your plate so that you can contribute as fully and as competently as you're truly capable of doing. Third one, love this one too, are the other people involved, people who themselves can contribute meaningfully? So are, do they have the right skill set? Do your background research, do due diligence to figure out if they're, if they're good at what they do, if they're trustworthy collaborators. And if you've worked with someone in, before and they're the total flaky cake who shows up <laughs> having not done their stuff, or they come, they're totally underprepared when they show up for a meeting, or they can't seem to make any decisions, they have to go revert back to, to somebody else on everything. Guess what? That's how they're going to be in this collaboration too. So don't expect people to behave differently than they have in the past. And so if you've got a potential collaborator who you know is a pain in the butt to work with, if you have any discretion, say no, like go find somebody else to do that with. And then the, the fourth one is really around, is the collaboration itself sufficiently resourced? To, to be successful. So if the goal is to create a brand new program, you know, for everybody in the organization, and by the way, your budget is $100, you know, say no to that because you probably could create a program. What you could do with your time, with your talents, with those of others would be more magnificent, more durable, more inspirational, more motivating. And um, if it is actually resourced at the level um, demanded by by the vision in the first place. So I would say if you can say yes to uh, vision alignment or your the alignment of your interest, you can actually contribute that someone else can contribute meaningfully and that it's well resourced. Those are the ones to say yes to. Otherwise say no. Cool. I like that. That's great. Um do you think just quickly, do you think liking the other person comes into it? If if it's completely voluntary, that's got to be a part of it as well. If it's going to proper wind you up, you might as well say yeah. no. Yeah, if you're if your skin crawls being around that person, or every time they open their mouth, you want to roll your eyes. But don't subject yourself to that. <laughs> I thought I thought that would be the case. That's brilliant. Okay, last question then before I go into standard questions: How important is good communication and storytelling in successful collaboration? Do you think? So I love the storytelling question. And I was thinking about this and the point of collaboration is you don't want to, this. you don't collaborate just because it feels good or because it's quote the right thing to do. You do it because the imagined future state clearly and significantly relates to the interest of the participating parties. In other words, there's something in it for you to be doing this together. So how do we know if there's something in it for you? We've got to paint the picture of what that imagined future looks like. And I think that's a really powerful place for stories because we can say, okay, let's imagine this is successful. Tell me the story of what does the world look like? What are our customers able to do because of this? What is, what is their journey like? How does it feel different for them or for the people within our organization? And that's much more it's much more of a thing than just saying, well, there will be 20 widgets and those will get turned around within the, the 10 X timeframe. It's more that when a customer calls and they need this thing, 
we know who we need to talk to right away and it gets done within a really short period of time and our customer leaves feeling, oh, I I was seen, I was heard, I was cared for, and now I'm going to tell all my friends about it. And that's about creating narrative around us. So that I think is really one of the powerful things about story and collaboration. The other related to story, so tell me if this is, is a fair, fair comment, the role of metaphor and simile and analogy when talking about collaboration and helping people see what's possible when you get the gears and the clock working together, when you get the organs and the organization working together. You know, there I've used probably 20 metaphors just in our conversation. You know, I, I talk about, sure, you can have the super structured um, work that's all project, you know, project planned galore, but unless you also have relationship quality, it's like cooking without salt, you know? And, and so it kind of, yeah, yeah, I want that for myself. And so helping people even see why they should invest the incredible time and energy and resources it takes to do collaboration well, I think the power of metaphor and those narrative moments, um, those narrative tools come into play very much there too for me and my business. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and and you're very good at it. And I think also something that I, you know, this is something that I teach and and believe is that the best way for people, going back to the sort of where people have been burned in the past, to become aware of some of the things, the baggage they're carrying into collaboration would be to tell them a story that they can relate to. So you're not putting it on them, you're showing them you know, that they, they have that aha through that story. When you're trying to introduce some of that, I guess that might be useful too. I love that, right? Because it's not necessarily, especially culturally where we're often not invited to share the hard parts about collaboration, which is the whole whisper in the title, but to, to even be able to start with some of my own stories of collaborations gone wrong. And yeah. I'll, I'll use my voice to to, to bring some noise to that little H hiding there in the title so other people can maybe feel not, not as alone or they're not allowed to talk about it. Because I really do think it's only through talking about it that we're going to be able to make this better. Absolutely. That's brilliant. Well, listen, thank you so much for sharing all that stuff. Um, and I will come back after the standard questions to where people can find out uh, more about you, working with you, getting the book and all that, all that good, uh, good stuff. So, First question. This is the speaking club. So um what has what's the best thing that speaking has done for you? Well, I would say it's helped me form connections. So it is through, I guess, through the stories and saying there's this this problem out there that we're all encountering and that other people are finding resonance with it and inviting me to to be part of the solution within their organization. So speaking as billboard for not only does she know what she's talking about, but she's the kind of person that I would like to to partner with to solve something that is pretty tricky. So the connection with the other people that begets then the, the business opportunities that come with it. Brilliant. Cool. And have you ever had a, a speaking gig, um, small or large in an organization, wherever it happens to be, that you just want to completely forget about it went wrong <laughs> you're just like no I never want to think about that thing ever again has that happened to you yeah so for me it was one early in COVID where you know I had been in the classroom in front of students for decades so 
yeah, I'm happy to be in front of a crowd. It feels very comfortable to me. Um, but this was in front of a crowd on Zoom and they had already, it was, it was maybe six months in and they had developed a culture internally where you just don't turn your cameras on. And so here I am giving a workshop. I pride myself on my workshops being incredibly interactive. You know, it's, I, I might be the, the guide on the side, but I'm not going to necessarily come in and just talk at you as the, the sage on the stage. And that's how I run my classrooms. It's how I run my workshops. And so I show up, everybody has their cameras off and except for the, the host. And it's clear that she is Tiffany typing, paying invoices or something. So, you know, we're all in the room, a couple, not all of us, a couple minutes early, some of us. And so I'm trying to, to do, you know, warm up conversation, checking in. Oh, I see you've got this, you've got this beautiful sculpture behind you. It's a story there. And um, just people not responding. It's like they didn't have their microphones on, their headphone or their sound on. And it felt like talking to an empty bowling alley. And I just felt deflated. I was like, why am I here? I said, so maybe I should have started recording it. So at the very least, I could have gotten some good footage to make use of later. But it felt like such a waste of three hours that I wish I, I would wish that one to disappear. Gosh, yeah. And do you know what? I've heard this more and more recently where people are turning their cameras off and it's I think it's rude for a start you know unless the host unless the speaker asks you to do that um I think if you are at a meeting you need to be present okay for a few minutes if you need to go to the loo or something like that or to the toilet or whatever but it's it's rude in and I think and you know the, the thing people need to understand in this context is that speaking is a two-way thing the same as any other sort of performance the speaker gets energy from you you get energy from the speaker and if there's nothing coming from you all of you are going to have a poorer experience as a result so if you are bothering to turn up to a meeting or a net you know whatever it is put your camera on pay attention and and give them respect and, and they will respect your time too so anyway sorry a bit of a rant there I, but no but I think the other piece of that is I wonder if those are people who've never been on the other side who perhaps don't have the empathy that actually that's kind of a hard thing to do to go hold space and to do something meaningful and powerful for other people in inside of a vacuum it's it's really difficult it's never occurred to me before but maybe that would be an interesting clause to put um, in the speaking contracts of if it is virtual, please announce to your people that my expectation and preference is presence. And again, like you said, there are reasons why sometimes, you know, I, I'm listening in as I go to pick up my kid from the, the school or something like that. I get it. Um, but or at, I mean, last one I did, it wasn't nearly as bad as that first one, but probably I would I'm trying to think it was probably around 85% with cameras off. So I think sure. we need to turn turn that tide around. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I would consider putting it in the contract. I think that's a fair, that's a fair shout. So anyway, moving on from that, let me ask you now, what is the book that's had most impact on your life and why? Oh, you know what? It's a collaboration book and it's actually a fable. Is that okay if I go, I'll go like yeah. way, way back. So the story of stone soup. So it's the parable where you have these weary travelers who've been out walking for days and days and they come upon this village 
And, you know, the village has been experiencing drought and hardship, and it's not that they've got a ton of bounty to, to work with, but the, eventually there's a bit of a charlatan in there, which it doesn't work great for the collaboration metaphor, but, you know, eventually everybody helps make this soup that started with just a big pot of water and a single stone. And what happens is every villager goes into their pantry and finds the one carrot, the one onion, or the one potato. Everybody contributes a little bit. And then what what they're able to co-create together is way more magnificent than what any one of them could have possibly done alone with the available ingredients that they had. So it's such a beautiful, beautiful metaphor. I think about it a lot. Oh, that's brilliant. That's cool. Excellent. Thank you for sharing that. Um, next question. What's the best bit of business advice you've had and why? To experiment and to play. So I decided to launch my business in the middle of COVID um, to, to move my collaboration consulting from a side hustle to my main thing. And I, I never started a business. I've started a nonprofit organization, but this felt, this felt new to me. And I didn't, I still don't know necessarily what I'm doing. I'm still figuring it out, but to, I guess two parts of the experiment. One is to be willing to look outside of yourself and again, create connection with other people who are going through the same thing or who have gone through the same thing that you can learn from and also contribute value to that it's a, a two-way street. Then as you're doing that, finding new things to try, um, knowing that you could, yeah, I won't say throw spaghetti against the wall because that makes it sound really haphazard and you know not at all intentional to not hold any of your ideas as so precious that they can't be modified or changed or any of your, your strategies or your approaches. So I think when I, when I started the business, I thought I would be working exclusively with higher ed organizations, for instance, and figured out really quickly, like, oh gosh, other people are hungry for this too. Um, the, you know, these collaboration problems, they exist everywhere. I, I should really be thinking more broadly about who, who needs my services. And so probably within a year, um, I decided to start transitioning that and, and talking more directly to the business owners out there about their, their challenges. That's brilliant. Cool. Love that stuff. Okay. Um, last question. If you could have one mentor and they can be alive or dead, fictional or non-fictional, who would you choose and why? Oh goodness. Who would I choose and why? You know what? This is maybe a, a cop-out answer, but I, I think of her as one of my current mentors is Leanne Davey. So she's the author of The Good Fight and You First, New York Times bestselling author, has the most amazing uh, LinkedIn feed, by the way. She, she talks about, she's on the couch, she says at LinkedIn. So she's always having fascinating conversations, really deep engagement, and she's so generous with her insights. So for instance, her newsletter this last week came out and she's dropping truth bombs left and right about this return to work thing and how we're, we're getting it wrong that the conversation's looking in the wrong direction. And I learned something every single time that I interact with her or her content. And she, she blurbed the book, by the way, had this great line about there's so much to love about collaborate. So she's also good with wordplay. So, you know, I got a kudos on that, but what I love about her is she's down to earth. She's strategic. She's open and generous, wise beyond belief, and is happy to, to offer that to other people with no strings attached. And so not only is she a great 
mentor and somebody I can turn to, but she's also the kind of mentor I want to be. And so there's like this, this modeling there that I find very uplifting and just would love to give her a hug. Brilliant. I should look her up uh, on LinkedIn for sure. Excellent. Well, listen, thank you so much again. If people want to find out more about the book, first of all, where's the best place for them to go for that? Collaborhate.com is the book's website. So from there, you can get access to obviously links to purchase the book anywhere you would like to, the publisher or Amazon, everywhere. Great books are sold. And uh, that's, I would say, go there for the book. Cool. And there's extra resources available too, aren't there? Yeah. So throughout the book, I talk a lot about, well, here, you know, you could go take this relationships quiz or something. And so there's a digital download section of the book where you can, you can go to other sites to, to see things that they're doing. Then most directly related to the book is there's a, a quiz that I, it's a, a piece of what I did for the great big data collection that fed into the book, but you can actually, it's a self-diagnostic quiz that you can use to evaluate your relationships at work. And then there's a, a DIY workshop that you can take yourself through to, to actually move your relationship from Collaborate to Collaborate. And as part of that, there, there's a card sort that's on, on the website that you'll need to download. So lots of, lots of tools. My hope is that the book is the first part of a conversation. And so the other thing would be to, to find me on LinkedIn. I'm, I'm there every day. I'm engaged. I'm chatting. I'm sharing lots of resources. So please, please join me there for the conversation. Brilliant. And the webinar, tell, tell us where we, people can find out more about that. So I am using LinkedIn for that. So if you go to my LinkedIn site under the, the featured post, you'll find out about the webinar. So it's, it's February 1st at 11 o'clock uh, for Eastern time in the United States. So I'm hoping it's not too late for my friends in the UK to, to be able to join us as well. And, or you can feel free to just email me if you can't find it and I'll just send the link over. Excellent. That's brilliant. Well, listen, Thank you so much for sharing all of that stuff. You've been very generous with the tips that you've given and, and the knowledge that you shared. And I want to ask you, before we finish, is there anything else that you need to say or you would like to say about collaboration in order to call this interview complete? Oh, thank you for that opportunity. I would say that if you're someone who you know, knows that, you want to be collaborating, but you also have had some of the struggles just to know that you're, you're not alone. There's a, yeah, I could say join the club that it's, it's difficult to do well. It's hard, but I think it's worthy of the hardness in terms of what we can do to open up everything from the, our bottom lines to our timelines, to the well-being of individuals when our collaborations are going well. So it is absolutely worth it. And let me know how I can help. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much, Deb. Uh, look forward to seeing how the book goes and uh, and to uh, hearing more about you as well. So congratulations and, and good luck. Thank you. And can I just say one other thing too, that I am so delighted by your content and your masterclass and cannot wait to benefit from your services and your coaching. So you've brought so much value to my to my world and I'm very grateful for that so thank you for sharing your gifts with everybody as well <laughs> you're more than welcome I'm really excited to be helping you get this out there more so that's brilliant okay Deb take care thank you so much again my pleasure I love Deb's energy and I'm looking forward to working with her 
I think we're going to have a lot of fun. And I definitely say that I've been burned in the past by poor collaboration. And I can absolutely see why Deb wanted to address the eye rolling that can happen when people mention it. But it's something that I believe we've got to get better at to solve some of the biggest issues that we face. Not to mention that the right collaboration can propel our careers and businesses forward. Now, Deb shared some great stuff here and there is tons more in her book. So do go and grab a copy of Collaborate. And also, as ever, do go and let Deb know what resonated with you. She's over on LinkedIn. There's a link to her LinkedIn profile in the show notes. And if you have an organisation that could do with help, get along to her webinar or get her in to have a look at how you collaborate. Well, that's it for this show. Don't forget to check out the masterclass over at saraharcher.co.uk slash masterclass. Um, And if you're a regular listener and you get value and you you like the show, then go and leave a rating or review over at uh, ratethispodcast.com slash TSC or on the platform that you listen to the show on. And uh, yeah, thanks so much for joining me again. And I will be back very soon. In the meantime, you know exactly what I'm going to say. Don't forget to go out and grab your life by the nuts and get cracking. Bye-bye. One of the things that I teach you on my masterclass has been a game changer for lots of people. The trouble is that we're often too close to our thing to present it in the way our audience needs to see it and hear it to get the results that we want. That's where this powerful live interactive masterclass comes in. I'm going to be taking you through my proven six-step heart map blueprint for creating powerful, authentic talks and content using stories that connect with your audience and get them into action. Here's some feedback from previous attendees. Definitely a value-packed two hours for anyone wanting to engage with their audience. Well worth signing up for Sarah's Masterclass if you want to make your content connect with your audience. Recommend it massively. Best two hours I've spent all year. I know your time is precious. That's why I guarantee that if you don't leave this Masterclass knowing exactly what you need to include in your next talk to get more engagement and sales, then I require you to ask for your money back. Grab your space to work with me on your talk at the next Masterclass over at saraharcher.co.uk slash masterclass.